This is the APS China Quarterly, January 2021. Hard Truths for 2021 by Wang Kakhoi. The year 2020 was an extraordinary one. Never have so many countries in the world been subjected to multiple national lockdowns. Never has the world, since the Great Depression of 1929, seen its gross domestic product growth contract by 5%. Never have so many major central banks gone into overdrive with their printing presses. Never have so many stock markets hit new highs when most major economies were contracting furiously. Never have we witnessed so many incompetent governments make one mistake after another in dealing with a pathogen. Never have we seen a multitude of excesses in financial markets for probably 50 years. Where are we heading? Here are hard truths, which we believe will be the top 10 investment issues for 2021. Number one, back to 1625. Investors should position for a historic moment with profound impact on the world. China is on its way to become the world's largest economy again after losing the crown some 400 years ago. If China's GDP grows at a rate that is two and a half percent higher than the U.S., something it has achieved in recent years, and if the Chinese yuan appreciates at five percent a year given U.S. money printing and a ballooning budget deficit, China's nominal GDP will surpass the U.S.'s by 2025. As of December 24th, 2020, the Chinese yuan had gained six and a half percent against the U.S. dollar year to date. The U.S. dollar similarly lost six and a half percent against a basket of major world currencies. As Singapore's late elder statesman Lee Kuan Yew said in an interview, the world will have to find a new balance when China rises. Quote, It is not possible to pretend that this is just another big player. This is the biggest player in the history of the world," he said. The Chinese citizenry's confidence in President Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party, and the government has shot up considerably this year, due to China's successful containment of COVID-19. The Chinese people have become more cohesive, more nationalistic, and more optimistic about the economy and for their future. We sense a great national pride in the Chinese, who have endured much hardship, turmoil, and humiliation, especially in the past 200 years. Cohesiveness and nationalism are imperative for continued success because China had experienced chaos and disruptions when they are absent. Combined with the Chinese confidence in their future, we can expect stability, which entrepreneurs would need for their businesses to thrive. When China does regain its crown, the biggest questions will be: How will China govern itself? Will it transition to a democracy? How will it conduct its diplomatic affairs? How will it conduct its trade relations? Will there be two economic blocks in the world or three? Will its currency be fully convertible? Will property prices in Shanghai and Beijing surpass that of Hong Kong and New York? Will its stock markets be the biggest in the world? Will it play a bigger role in multilateral institutions? How will strategic asset allocation decisions be quote retooled? If current growth trends continue over the next 15 years, 
China's economy might even be double the size of the U.S. economy by 2035. For now, taking the time machine back to 1600 is already enough excitement for the Chinese and long-term investors. Number two, China's economy likely to rebound 8 to 10% in 2021. As the only major economy to have wrestled the COVID-19 epidemic under control, China might grow a low single-digit percentage in 2020. In 2021, it might continue to outperform, rebounding some 8 to 10% in 2021, according to various economists. Growth is likely to be led by consumption and capital spending. Recent economic data point to a strong economic trajectory. Retail sales growth rose to 5% year-on-year in November, up from 0.5% in August. Fixed asset investment grew 2.6% for the first 11 months of the year, up from 0.3% for the first 8 months. Expert growth continued to be expectations. Unlike the U.S., China steered clear of discussions of negative interest rates and was not forced to monetize its mounting debt. Instead, it continued to deleverage its economy, allowing rates to rise so economic risks could be more accurately priced. Corporate earnings are well-placed to recover in earnest. All this bodes well for China's stock markets in 2021. China has the best growth story, combined with fiscal and monetary prudence, buzzing entrepreneurship, as well as confident consumers relatively unscarred by income and job losses. Number 3. COVID-19 is still COVID-21. Investors experienced a heady month in November 2020 following successful Phase 3 trials of vaccine candidates of the Pfizer-BioNTech partnership, as well as Moderna. Many investors are confident the vaccines will finally vanquish COVID-19 in 2021. After a tough year of lockdowns, job losses, bankruptcies, and deaths, it is understandable that many cling on to the hope for a swift resolution. However, Vaccine experts warn it is way too early to tell if these vaccines are sufficient to achieve global herd immunity, which means 60 to 70% of humanity needs to be inoculated. Herd immunity is difficult to achieve because of numerous challenges beyond the ultra-cold supply chain required by the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine No one knows how long vaccine protection remains effective, or how that protection fades over time. Side effects observed during vaccine trials fall within acceptable limits in terms of severity and prevalence, but the tests have not included young children, pregnant women, and those with compromised immune systems. Long-term side effects are also still unknown. It also remains to be seen if the vaccine prevents transmission to another individual. Meanwhile, like the flu virus, the COVID-19 coronavirus will likely continue to mutate in 2021, with significant mutations already discovered in February, August, and September. Governments will also have to make a major decision on whether to roll out mass vaccinations based on a few months of clinical trials. Do the economy and jobs take precedence over public health? at the risk of deaths or permanent health damage caused by new vaccines that are intended to protect populations from COVID-19? Because of the above reasons, we think herd immunity will not be achieved in 2021, 
and COVID-19 will continue to dog global economies. This will in turn have implications on the easing of public health and travel restrictions within and between countries. Social distancing and mask wearing will likely still be the most effective public health measures to keep the disease from overstretching healthcare systems. The December 2020 flare-ups in new COVID-19 cases could have been avoided if people believed in this simple dictum. Nobody is safe till everybody is safe. For 2021, our view is that nobody will be safe just yet. We will leave you with some sobering observations made by Ken Frazier, CEO of pharmaceutical giant Merck Co. in a July 2020 interview. Quote, I think the record for the fastest vaccine ever brought to market was Merck in the mumps vaccine. It took about four years. Our most recent vaccine for Ebola took five and a half years. What worries me the most is that the public is so hungry, so desperate to go back to normalcy, that they are pushing us to move things faster and faster. But ultimately, if you're going to use a vaccine in billions of people, you better know what that vaccine does. We don't have a great history of introducing vaccines quickly in the middle of a pandemic. We want to keep that in mind. When we do tell people that a vaccine's coming right away, we allow politicians to actually tell the public not to do the things that the public needs to do, like wear the damn masks. We Americans, we value liberty. And so we could say, it's all about my liberty. It's not about security or group security. Well, this virus doesn't really care about that. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to exercise your liberty at my personal expense, then we can't control the pandemic. Unquote. Number four, Sino-U.S. detente, waiting for Gado. China has been restrained amid the trade war. It will likely continue to pull its punches, even while it expects a lame duck President Trump to pour gasoline on smoldering embers on his way out of the White House. Some investors might thus expect a thaw in Sino-U.S. relations as President-elect Joe Biden puts together his administration. Adding to the optimism is how President-elect Biden had visited China a few times as vice president under the Obama administration, spending many days accompanied by then-Vice President Xi Jinping. For a short while, the U.S. even used the term, quote, major power relations to describe the dynamic between the two nuclear-armed giants. Indeed, we could be upbeat about Sino-U.S. relations in areas of common interest, such as evolving global trading rules under the World Trade Organization framework, climate change, and a coordinated COVID-19 response under the World Health Organization umbrella. We think the Biden administration might also be less openly hardline against China over issues like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Tibet. The risk of a quote, hot war between the two countries might decline. However, even before Donald Trump took the White House, the relationship between the two superpowers was already heading into rough waters. Today, they are contesting for supremacy on practically every front across the world, where China's rapidly growing capabilities, rather than its intentions, pose a problem to the incumbent superpower. The U.S. is determined to stay at the apex of the pyramid of global power, be it militarily, economically, technologically, or geopolitically. 
Washington sees China as the main strategic threat to this ambition. Meanwhile, China and its people see no reason not to press ahead to modernize its nation and economy, and to realize the China dream of a better standard of living. It will be a happy outcome for both countries and the world if Xi and Biden can convince their respective national leaderships to work together rather than expend energy and precious resources in openly hostile confrontation on every front. However, domestic political forces in both Beijing and Washington are considerably more complicated and deep-seated than the friendship forged by the two men. The Trump administration was helmed by, quote, baptized, card-carrying China hawks like Robert Lighthizer, Wilbur Ross, and Peter Navarro. This trio operated according to the mantra of, quote, death to China or else death by China, with Navarro having penned a book titled Death by China. As former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton revealed in his book The Room Where It Happened, the China hawks had no interest in negotiating any kind of trade deal with China. Some of that hawkishness will carry over. While Biden is bringing in capable and experienced people to his administration, who can be more rational and methodical in their approach, they might not be less tough. We believe the new Biden administration is still likely to stifle Chinese efforts in key areas like artificial intelligence, big data, 5G, quantum computing, surveillance equipment, and semiconductors, among others. It might still be hawkish over the military balance in the South China Sea. As James Lewis, director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington put it, quote, We want to spend money on keeping America as the technological leader in semiconductors. Chinese cannot duplicate what they get from Qualcomm and Intel. They cannot make 5G without America, unquote. The U.S., meanwhile, can easily replicate what it gets from China, but it chose not to because it was not as profitable, he said. In a nutshell, Sino-U.S. relations may improve somewhat, but rocky relations are likely to be the zeitgeist. Investors should not expect Gado to arrive. Number 5. Punishing Jack or Regulating Tech The mainstream view was that the Ant initial public offering was cancelled at the 11th hour because Jack Ma's speech at the Bund Summit on October 24th ruffled the feathers of regulators, bankers, and politicians. There was even speculation of an order from President Xi himself to punish Jack Ma for slamming an outdated banking regulatory regime, as well as other criticisms of the Chinese establishment. On 24 December 2020, regulators announced a probe on Alibaba over its, quote, two-choose-one policy and other anti-competitive behavior. In my assessment, Beijing might have been offended by some remarks made at the forum, but the true reason for the last-minute IPO cancellation cannot be attributed to just those remarks. Policymaking in China is deliberate. It involves many months of discussions and studies before laws are enacted. Talk of regulating tech has been going around since 2019. 
Regulators are aware of the debates in social media and abroad about the need to rein in anti-competitive behavior, consumer privacy abuses, and other excesses. In the U.S. and Europe, big tech firms have been investigated multiple times under antitrust laws. Google faced 27 investigations, Amazon and Apple 22, and Facebook 13. The European Union has even spent 10 years pursuing Google over antitrust charges and fined it a total of USD 10 billion. Chinese regulators have been studying these suits against the backdrop of the many complaints lodged domestically against Chinese tech firms for misleading advertising, brushing, abuse of customer data, and anti-competitive behavior. Practically all Chinese e-commerce companies have been selling below cost for years to grow their revenue. Small retailers and -and mom-and-pop shops have been complaining to their local party officials. JD.com was investigated from 2019 by the Shanghai police over allegations by NOAA Wealth Management and several financial services companies that it was using faked trade receivables, which are probably a result of wash sales. In the case of Ant Group IPO, regulators were concerned over the systemic risk Ant posed to China's financial system, given that consumer credit balance enabled through its platform was CNY 1.7 trillion, or USD 265 billion, as of mid-2020, amid a market for consumer loans in China that totaled USD 2 trillion in 2019. The Chinese regulators' primary concern is the way the business is conducted. Ant Group had bundled loans extended to their 500 million individual customers into asset-backed securities, which were sold to regional banks across China. Ant Group earns handsome fees as the arranger, interim lender, as well as the investment banker, while effectively transferring the risk to regional banks. Similar to the collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities of the 2008 Lehman crisis, the buyers of these ABS are completely unable to properly assess the risk of these products, as there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of disparate individual unsecured loans in one ABS. Ant's capital commitment to these loans was a mere 2%, with 98% of its lending underwritten by its partner banks or securitized away. From Ant's standpoint, the more they act as interim lender, the more profits they make. From the regulator's standpoint, the more successful Ant is, the more vulnerable the financial system will become. Another concern held by regulators is the usurious interest rates of 18-29% to a year charged to these typically youthful borrowers. Today, many young Chinese borrow from multiple fintech lenders amid thousands of lightly regulated fintech companies in China. This is reminiscent to young Koreans owing money to 5-10 to credit card issuers during South Korea's cards crisis around the 2002 FIFA World Cup. In the 2000s, the Japanese consumer finance crisis eventually led to the failure of Japan's largest consumer lender, Takafuji. Takafuji's demise marked the end of an era in an industry that lent billions of yen to lower-income Japanese at sky-high interest rates. Chinese regulators no doubt have the previous two examples in mind when it comes to dealing with Ant Group. In our assessment, 
Jack Ma's contentious Bund speech, where he attacked the Basel III framework, was actually a last-ditch appeal to politicians and regulators to spare Ant Group from being regulated like a bank. He must have known that tighter regulations for the Chinese fintech industry will soon be enacted. He came across as uncomfortable, stiff, and nervous, which is very unlike Jack Ma. He made a clumsy attempt to change the minds of politicians and regulators. He even changed the name of the company from Ant Microfinancial Services to Ant Technology Group in June 2020. However, his argument that Ant is a tech rather than finance company was not compelling. Until this year, fintech companies had been given almost a free hand to grow their businesses into leviathans. Like all businesses that are gently and poorly regulated, besides blatant illegal practices, other malfeasances in China's e-commerce sector include antitrust behavior and discriminatory pricing. A famous case that went viral on Chinese social media was that of two staff from the same company who were charged to very different hotel room rates by Trip.com for similar stays booked during similar times. In the collapse of thousands of peer-to-peer -peer lenders in China between 2016 and 2020, where only a couple of dozens remain today, millions of small individual lenders in China lost a total of USD 115 billion out of USD 218 billion of outstanding loans. Many businesses were frauds, with Izubao alone causing USD 8 billion in losses. Chinese regulators, who are career bureaucrats like in Singapore and Japan, can ill afford another scandal of this scale. We think fintech IPOs might be put off for at least two years, for three reasons. Regulations have yet to be enacted, business models need to be drastically changed, and investors need to study the impact of regulations. We thus think the honeymoon period for Chinese tech companies is finally over and fintech business volumes will contract and profitability will plunge. New regulations might be the start of a long winter for the entire tech sector in China. Number 6. E-commerce is more bubble than magic. The e-commerce business model can be summed up simply. Raise jumbo capital regularly, increase top-line growth prodigiously by selling at unstinting subsidies, Reward your staff fulsomely with share-based compensation. Rev up your investors with stories. Your stock price surges, then you and your staff cash in. Major Chinese community-buying e-commerce player Pinduoduo has lost money every year since its inception five years ago. PDD's singular business strategy is to achieve colossal top-line growth by massively subsidizing price-sensitive consumers in lower-tier cities to buy low-quality, cheap, commoditized products like toiletries, snacks, apparel, and shoes. With fixed assets of only USD 86 million, it is not clear how PDD has built anything for long-term profitability. What PDD had done in the past five years, any other competitor can also do, so long as investors are willing to give them capital to burn. However, the market valued it at USD 172 billion as of 24 December 2020. The firm raised another USD 6.1 billion in November, increasing its shareholders' equity by 150% in one stroke. 
A few weeks later, it raised another USD 500 million from an investor. Not to be left out, JD.com raised USD 8.5 billion in 2020. Why are shareholders being massively diluted when companies are telling them they will soon be making or will be making much more respectable profits? PDD is not the only e-commerce wizard with the magic wand. JD.com is another, and there's also Singapore-headquartered C Limited, run by current and former Chinese nationals. Like PDD, C Limited has never made a profit since inception and has made a loss of USD 1 to 1.4 billion a year for three straight years. This is due to huge losses in its e-commerce business, despite a profitable gaming business. C-Limited must compete against the likes of Alibaba-backed Lazada, which has changed three CEOs in three years, continues to burn millions of dollars every year, and is unlikely to give up its presence in Southeast Asia. C-Limited's shareholder equity is all burned up. It also raised USD $2.6 billion in December 2020. However, its market capitalization, at around USD $100 billion as of 28 December 2020, had surpassed that of the combined valuation of a quintet of iconic Singapore companies, OCBC at USD $34 billion, Singtel at USD $29 billion, Keppel Corp, USD $7.5 billion, Capital Land at USD $13 billion, and Singapore Airlines at USD $10 billion. Are investors right to value the company thus, when it has yet to earn a single dollar? Has any shareholder or even senior management figured out if these companies will make profits? The year 2020 ought to have been a banner year for e-commerce companies because of COVID-19 accelerating e-commerce penetration. However, most companies still cannot turn in a profit. The few which did so only eked out a poor return on equity. How can they make decent profits when the economy normalizes? This situation cannot continue indefinitely. Competition, meanwhile, continues to intensify. The current hottest mania in Chinese e-commerce is fresh produce, distributed through community group buying platforms. One after another, e-commerce companies are taking the plunge, despite abundant empirical evidence suggesting that there are little profits in it. The usual price war is currently on. In Shujiazhuang City in Huabei Province, the community group buying platform of Meituan reportedly sold half a dozen eggs for USD 0.27, and PDD swiftly responded with USD 0.24. Meituan immediately retaliated with USD 0.239, with PDD then responding with USD 0.22 in this subsidy war. In more normal times, six eggs will cost about USD 1.00 in China. Alibaba-backed Yiguo, a famous first-mover fresh produce company in China, filed for bankruptcy in October 2020 after burning USD 1.5 billion. Even Alibaba's Hima, probably the largest offline fresh produce 200-plus store supermarket chain, is still bleeding, despite investing millions and hiring talent aggressively from outside the firm. 
a senior management member of an established supermarket chain in which we are a long-term shareholder, told us recently there is too much hype in fresh food retailing. He is sure that all of them will inevitably have to pay, quote, tuition fees for the years needed to learn about building cold chain warehouses, dealing with spoilage, and managing intricate farmer relationships. This is a tough business. The government is also watching. In December 2020, amid the latest subsidy war in the community group buying space, a commentary in the People's Daily mouthpiece mocked e-commerce companies for being obsessed with selling cabbages rather than investing in real innovation. We can perhaps characterize China's e-commerce scene as not just perfect competition, but atrocious price competition. In August 2020, Tesla clashed with PDD for tarnishing its brand by selling its electric cars below cost. Apple's iPhones have been loss-making products for almost all Chinese retailers, online and offline, all these years, according to our conversation with the former CEO of a major 3C retailer in China. Such competition explains why a major company like JD.com has lost money for 15 straight years until its recent small profits, taking the company's financial statements at face value. It also explains why C Limited and PDD have lost money every single year since inception. In China, price aggregator apps compare prices of goods across online platforms and physical stores, such that price-sensitive customers can compare prices before making an optimal purchase decision. In this regime, retailers selling at just one yuan higher would lose their customers. Alibaba turns a profit because of its humongous scale and its 3P platform model. What is bizarre is that e-commerce companies are valued very differently by U.S. and Chinese investors. Suning is an online and offline retailer listed in China, competing head-on with JD.com and PDD across all product categories with similar cost structures. Suning's share price has collapsed 50% over the past three years, while PDD's and JD.com's have skyrocketed eightfold and twofold. Suning is listed in China, while Alibaba, JD.com, and PDD are on the Nasdaq. Chinese investors know too well about the cutthroat competition in the space, the accounting shenanigans, wash sales, and other worrying issues. They are also the customers paying 20 US cents for six eggs. Many Chinese investors I talk to tell me they are happy to stay as customers. JD.com and PDD, on the other hand, are held by mainly American investors who believe massive profits will eventually be made. One not-so-well-reported recent development is Suning's recent decision to sell its e-commerce business for USD $6 billion. Why are there no takers at the time of writing, when JD.com and PDD are currently valued 30 times more? Suning's billionaire founder is a savvy and highly experienced retail entrepreneur. Alibaba paid USD $4.6 billion for a 20% stake in Suning in 2015. Suning and Alibaba should know the Chinese e-commerce landscape better than any other e-commerce entrepreneur, analyst, or investor. For Suning to attempt to exit a loss-making business says a lot. 
They seem to believe that, given rapidly intensifying competition, there is no pot of gold in e-commerce in the foreseeable future. It might make business sense to exit now, while there is still euphoria in the financial markets, rather than to keep burning cash. Ultimately, we think Chinese e-commerce sector is a big stock market bubble waiting to pop. Investors are exuberant, despite evidence of highly likely permanent losses. Many U.S. investors see glittering gold at the end of the rainbow. They seem to have more money than sense. Like Li Guo or any business, selling below cost as a business model is not sustainable, for revenue will evaporate the instant that subsidies stop. The collapse might come once companies fail to access capital markets, or when a bear market dampens animal spirits. Had they not raised capital in 2020, PDD, JD.com, and C Limited might have faced solvency issues in 2021. We do not think that fierce price competition will ease a bit. In the fresh food e-commerce space, for example, there are already 4,000 companies operating in China, among which only 1% are profitable. When new tech regulations are enacted in early 2021, such that e-commerce companies are prohibited from selling below cost amongst other prohibitions, their cash burn might improve, but their top line is likely to shrink. This will be received negatively by U.S. investors. Like all asset bubbles, when they pop, investors will sigh. The writing was already on the wall. Why didn't I see it? What was I thinking at the time? Number 7. You cannot print your way to prosperity. Many developed nations have been engaged in extended money printing to prop up flatlining economies for years and this was ramped up further as a response to COVID-19 to prevent their economies from sliding into the abyss. Money printing is underpinned by modern monetary theory, pumping liquidity into a weak economy in an inflation-free environment is probably not a bad thing to do. However, huge doses of liquidity injected over extended periods of time have always led to unintended consequences, such as asset bubbles from Bitcoin to real estate, equities, and largely unproductive assets like gold. Liquidity blinds investors to minefields. Stock prices are bid up to elevated levels despite falling capex, permanent job losses, climate change challenges, and a raging epidemic in the US and Europe. What remains to be seen is whether the wealth created from asset inflation driven by ample liquidity will lead to a resurgent consumer price index, which may then see stagflation rear its ugly head again after a four-decade absence. While danger signs are not apparent yet, investors will do well to be aware of this risk. Eminent economists, including Paul Grugman, have warned against monetizing fiscal deficits. The late architect of Singapore's economic growth, Dr. Gokeng Sui, was so worried about this future risk that the money printing function was separated from Singapore's de facto central bank, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. He had believed that the irresistible soft option out of any economic slowdown is to turn to the printing press. Number 8. Deal of the Century? A key consequence of money printing is on the currency. 
buying U.S. treasuries for almost zero coupon, only to be repaid in freshly printed greenbacks, must surely be the deal of the century for the U.S. government. Investors in U.S. debt have been willing buyers, which is mind-boggling if you look at it with cold, hard objectivity. In essence, investors get almost zero return after years of holding the paper, only to be repaid in a currency that will be printed in abundance rather than the country's future income. The funds raised in 2020 were not invested into infrastructure, capex, or education that will contribute to national income in years to come, but instead used for bailouts and emergency COVID-19 cash disaster relief. Should investors be surprised that the USD has fallen 12% since March? Treasury investors are already sitting on that loss. Will investors come around to the realization that the best deal for the U.S. Treasury is the worst deal for them? Number 9. Is value investing dead? We are at the end of what must be the toughest decade in living memory for the breed of value investors best epitomized by Warren Buffett. Pundits claim we are witnessing the death of value investing, first espoused by Benjamin Graham and Graham Dodd almost 90 years ago. This debatable death knell has been long in the making. From the 1970s to late 1990s, investor David Dremen had published books featuring stock screens filtering for equities with low P.E. and low price-to-book ratios. Many fund managers had made good money for decades following this simple strategy. Today, however, too many portfolio managers still rely on screening for metrics like high ROEs, low leverage, and the original PEPB duo. Since a money manager could potentially screen for stocks in Alaska or Iceland, is there still an edge to doing screening from London, New York, or Shanghai? If you do what many others do, then you cannot possibly create an edge, regardless of how hard you try. It is indeed shocking that this method has passed for investment strategy for so many institutional investors for decades. It is not value investing. Dremen was fired in 2009 from the flagship fund that bore his name. He was undone by bets on financial services stocks that went sour in 2008 telling the New York Times, quote, the E, or earnings, was much worse than anyone thought. The banks themselves had no idea of how bad the E was. In APS, we never rely on the P-E ratio as a key measure of value. Instead, we believe it is the most abused metric because it only pertains to a single year of earnings, which is less than 5% of a company's intrinsic value. A stock trading at 5x PE can be expensive even after its stock price had fallen 30% if its earnings were to subsequently fall 90%, which will drive the PE to a lofty 50x. The key to value investing is determining the correct intrinsic value of a company's stream of cash flows, or the replacement value of its assets. Determining this key metric is not at all straightforward and requires hard work, knowledge, expertise, a healthy skepticism, and an inquiring mind. It can rarely be achieved by looking at historical data, which is the essence of methods like stock screens. 
When the share price of a truly undervalued stock declines, it becomes an even bigger bargain, which must mean that the odds of outperforming the broader market increases, and when it outperforms, it does so with a larger margin. This logic is consistent with Benjamin Graham's quote, margin of safety idea, which entails paying significantly below the intrinsic value of assets. In my view, value investing is still relevant today. Benjamin Graham might mention the importance of estimating the economic productivity of a company's assets over several years, that is, the return on assets. Even buying a stock with a low ROA of, say, 6% is value investing if it only cost 0.3x price to book. Alternatively, paying four times price to book for an ROA of 12% leaves you with no margin of safety at all. Warren Buffett, meanwhile, might add that trying to pigeonhole stocks under the labels of either quote growth or quote value is a fool's errand, for the two investing concepts are joined at the hip. Value must always be evaluated in relation to growth, and GARP, growth at a reasonable price, might be a useful mnemonic for investors. Where does that leave us in relation to the FANG growth stocks? These stocks may have grown at higher rates than value stocks. Paying a higher valuation for them is a reasonable thing to do. However, we have seen a blistering price-to-earnings ratio expansion amidst slowing growth in the last two to three years. In some cases, companies are valued in excess of $100 billion merely because they are, quote, close cousins of tech and when they have yet to make a single dollar of profit. Discounted cash flow models can factor in an initial high growth phase, followed by moderated expansion, and then a terminal growth rate for when the companies mature. In this era of widespread near-zero interest rates, we do not think these models are working as intended. It produces distortions, discounting 10 or 20 or 30 years of future cash flows using today's artificially depressed interest rates. Interest rates can rise yet. In the past century, there have been many more years of inflation than deflation, and there were not any periods over five years where inflation was negligible. This chart from the International Monetary Fund's time series data showing America's post-war consumer price index is indicative. We are not quite sure what is the best solution to this problem. But if you are locked into relying on DCF models, it might be more useful to use ex-ante discount rates. This is a tricky estimate. Using the mean and median rates over 30 or 50 years might be a useful starting point. Number 10. The Eighth Wonder of the World When Trump first took the White House, he exhorted U.S. companies to repatriate jobs by offering tax incentives and levying hefty tariffs on Chinese-made goods. However, corporates responded by shifting some factories to countries like India and Vietnam, with Japanese, Korean, and Australian companies following suit to mitigate the impact of American trade barriers aimed at China. All eyes are now on fellow Asian giant India and whether China will become significantly less important in the globalized supply chains that underpin international trade. This is an area that investors need to watch closely. 
Over the past two decades, China has built a phenomenal supply chain ecosystem. This feat entailed not just building factories, but having an education system that will churn out 9 million graduates in 2021. China built an immense infrastructure backbone like power grids, a national highway system, waterworks, deep sea ports, railway networks, and airports. Companies like Toyota and Apple are amazed that there are no bottlenecks in bringing their quote made in China products to international markets, so much so that they must wonder if China's supply chain ecosystem is the eighth wonder of the world. We thus do not think India or Vietnam will replace China anytime in the next few years. Wong Kok Hoi is the founder and CIO of APS Asset Management. He has 40 years of investment experience, including CIO at CityTrust Japan, Senior PM at Citibank Hong Kong, and Senior Investment Officer at GIC. He was the recipient of the prestigious Manbushu Scholarship in Japan and graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce Honors degree from the Hitusubashi University, 1981. Mr. Wong also completed the Investment Appraisal and Management Program at Harvard University, 1990.